This week, we talk to Lewis Graydon, Fisher & Paykel Healthcare CEO. As New Zealand's most valuable listed company with a current market capitalization of $15 billion, it expects full-year operating revenue for the 2023 financial year to be within the range of around $1.55 to $1.6 billion. During the pandemic, Fisher & Paykel Healthcare's respiratory products played an important role in helping patients with obstructive sleep apnea or requiring at-home respiratory support. The company managed to maintain supply despite the challenges. Lewis talks about Fisher & Paykel Healthcare's performance post-COVID and shares his personal reflection as CEO, having worked for the same company for 40 years. This is The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. First, I'd love to talk about you and, and, and that 40-year career. Um, how did you get there? Um, how did you get, in, I guess, in, in the front door of, of Fisher & Paykel and then that journey that you went through, especially around the R&D and the design part of the business, which is really the, 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 the thing that's so special about Fisher & Paykel, uh, it, would be, it would be great to, to hear your journey of, of, of how you ended up becoming CEO. <laughs> so how long have you got <laughs> yeah when I look at your whole agenda um, <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do all of that in an hour but um, we'll try shall we so look when I graduated from university my burning desire was to um, design something um, that would be used that's what I wanted to do um, that was a limited number of companies in New Zealand um, and when I look back, probably the, the lucky part uh, was that the, the job I took was at Fisher & Paykel, and that's why I took it, because it was an opportunity to um, design things. It wasn't the most lucrative thing I could have done at the time, but it, it was, you know, what I wanted to do. So um, I started in R&D, and I guess the, the context here now is, um, you know, when I started in 1983, uh, we were about 20 people in the office, about 20 people in uh, manufacturing. And today that's um, close to 6,500 total. So you're part of a growing business. And um, I think this goes to when the scope is improving care and outcomes with medical devices, there's an awful lot that um, humanity has yet to do. So you've got you know, a fabulous scope and it global scope, and I think that's kind of, you know, a key part of the story. So um, as the business grew, I kind of progressed through, um, well, you know, when you're 20 people, you're doing a little bit of everything, aren't you? And I think that's uh, been a fabulous part of my career. You know, I've sold, I've been in manufacturing, um, I've been in a regulatory space, I've, 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 I've um, been part of a lot of what we do through that journey. And when you think about, I guess, delving into the R&D side of things, I guess this is getting into the crux of the, the business immediately, but it's also your experience and, and, and where you've come from, from in that journey. But at the R&D pipelines, it's not just come up with some sort of design or idea and build it and sell it in three months. This is a long, long process. And, and but yet the end market moves quite fast. And, you know, we saw it with with different um, things that have happened with, you know, with, say, vaccines and COVID or, or, or um, um, respiratory and COVID, but also but the things that you were delivering um, quickly during that time, for example, weren't just designed in the, you know, three months prior. They were designed over years and years. How, how do you decide as a business or first as a designer when you're in, I, you know, people talk about what was the best job and, you know, you probably have to say it's being the CEO, but you probably are going to say when you're a 23-year-old designer in the R&D department. Yeah, had, had a ball. Um, look, really complex question. Um, and I think there's a little bit of maybe relevant history there. If you go back to Fisher & Paykel's origins uh, in appliances, it started off importing product and, it, and New Zealand was heavily tariff protected. Um, they, they were smart enough to know that tariffs weren't going to last forever we're going back 40s, 50s, 60s, and we were going to have to manufacture in New Zealand. Uh, and then the next step was, gee, you can't manufacture appliances in New Zealand and compete with GE 
uh, on a global stage or even in New Zealand. You can't compete with those companies. So the next step in the thinking is you're going to have to do something different. And ideally, you want to do everything different and you want to do everything better because you're not going to compete head to head with these um, massive European American companies. So um, when I started in R&D, it was fully built into the culture that you have to do something different. We're talking about early 80s. Innovation was the catchphrase at Fisher and Paykel. Uh, and of course, every company on the planet today would say we're innovators. It was quite unusual, or a lot more unusual, uh, in, well, prior to the 80s. You know, we need to innovate to be competitive. We're going to have to do something different. We're going to have to do something better. And then when it got to the healthcare business, translating something different, something better, that became you're going to have to improve outcome. So the core of our philosophy and the core of what we do is how do we improve outcomes? And um, that can be a, a holistic thought in our business. They can be different entities. We can have a patient. We can have some, someone using our product. We can have someone paying for our product. And they can all be different entities. So something better for all those entities is what we're aiming at. So the discipline in the R&D process um, and this is just like everything we do, the process continually improves over the years. Um, but these days, the discipline is what's the patient, what's the condition, what can we do to improve outcomes you know, across those three domains. And then once you're, um, once you're stuck on, or committed, it's a better word, once you're committed to improving outcomes, you, you know what you're aiming at, and you know what you can um, try and do. And I think that's a really, really core part of the philosophy. So then it's, um, and our world's become more and more complex, I think rightly so, over the years, and medical devices more and more um, regulated, which I think is correct. Um, then it's about, um, you know, and this is, some of, this is some of the exciting things. You're doing clinical research. You're doing technology research. Sometimes the idea is quite simple, but you can't make it, you can't manufacture it. Sometimes you can manufacture it, but not cost effectively. So then you're into manufacturing. Now you've got um, a different, you've got a different way of treating patients or a variation on a way of treating patients. So we're trying to communicate that this is a better way of doing it to physicians globally. There's a time frame. there's clinical data, um, you can call it marketing. It's a very, very specialised kind of marketing. And generally, the, the, the way to do it, the way we do it, is with salespeople. The salespeople calling on hospitals, talking to doctors, going through clinical data, going through what our therapy might do and what clinical data shows it, it does. Uh, and then um, you're, you're asking a hospital to change their clinical practice. You used to treat these patients like this. There's really good clinical data to say if you treat them like that, uh, you're going to get better outcomes across all these domains. And now add all that up, that's quite a time frame, isn't it? You know, I've gone from clinical research, technology research, manufacturing research, and clinical research to show the outcome improvement in a patient. And then actually, the way it actually works is calling on doctors, hospitals, physicians one by one, you know, and going through it with them. You're quite a long time frame. So um, I think that's another really, really core element of our business. What, what our business is built on does take a long time. So you've got to think, you must think over the long term and you must act over the long term. And at times that takes courage. And oh, when I say long term, you know, we, we, we would call five years short term. And when I say long term, I'm talking 30. And you made a, you know one comment about you know the CEO role. One of the first investor conferences uh, I did, I, I was talking about long term, short term. I got to about lunchtime, and by then I've spoken to half a dozen people, and I realised that this was in California. I realised that my audience, short term's a quarter, <laughs> long term's a year. So I had to change my language real fast. <laughs> but anyway, I think the key element is, yeah, this, this does take a long time, and it's not because we're slow. It's not because things aren't moving quickly. That is the nature of the beast, and, you know, it's challenging. It's, it's a really fascinating process because – how do you and because you've done all these different roles in in the business uh, you'll you'll have first hand experience obviously but you want to develop a a new product or device or or whatever it is and then and 
and and that needs to have quite a lot of research and development and and prototypes and all that sort of thing before you even speak to the doctors. And then you have to rely upon the fact that the doctors and hospitals take up that product. And that's hard in itself because you might have a doctor that might be skeptical, but also, and this, and this is from a, uh, um, um, this is a rudimentary comment, but it seems from the outside in when you work and deal with a hospital, it is incredibly difficult to speak to the right people who are making the purchase decisions and hospitals in California and what's the budget and who's making the decision and when is it going to be decided upon? How, how do you balance wanting to be advancing this technology um, and taking it to market, but not going too fast because you've, you might get, you might get trip out at the last minute with, by the people who are actually buying this stuff. Yeah, so as I say, you know, our process continue improves over the years. I'd say the way we think about it today is... And obviously you've done it before. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> we and, and we get better and better at it over time. And you, you can see that in kind of all of our numbers. If you look at them over a 20-year time frame, there's actually continuous improvement in our productivity, so to speak. But um, the, the, the way we think about it now is if it's a new therapy... We really want to understand the mechanisms of action. What's this therapy doing? And that'll be clinical work, and that'll be lockdown. So this is what it's doing. And then, and you can be confident about that, this this nasal high flow would be a classic example. We know it improves CO2 washout. That's a mechanism of action. Um, We know it um, humidifies mucocilia to, you know, body temperature saturated. We know it does those two things. We know it does a pressure. And so that's kind of science. We know that. That's a mechanism of action. Then the next step is does that have, have a physiological outcome? Is this, that's what it's doing. Can I measure something good in the physiology? Can I meta, measure better oxygen in the blood? Can I measure a lower work of breathing? So these are things we can now move on and we can measure and we can say, yep, I've got some physiological improvements um, and, and that's all doable with a high-level confidence. And then the next step is to move on and say, does this result in a better outcome for the patient? And um, that's the large studies, randomised controlled trials. That's the grind, and uh, that's what can take time. That's where you can get some twists and turns in the road, and often that's about how you design the studies, how you're applying the therapy, Um you know, that, that can be quite a long time frame. And, but if you look at it over, you know, a 10 to 20-year time frame, eventually, with some twists and turns in the road, uh, that will turn into a clinical practice guideline and it might come from a European Respiratory Society or the World Health Organization or American Society. That'll turn into a clinical practice guideline. And then at that point in time, Think of that as like advice for physicians. There's still not there's still another step to actually change the practice. And then overlaying all this, we kind of think of physicians, hospitals as um, there's, a, there's an adoption curve. You've got early adopters. Oh, I see what it's doing. It's washing out CO2. That's going to that's going to give you great outcomes eventually. There's an early adopter. And then you've got kind of a, a bell. We think of it as a bell curve. You know, it's an abstract concept, but and then at the other end of this bell curve, you've got your late adopter, which is one of the clinical practice guidelines. Um, uh, what's Auckland Hospital doing? What's Middlemore Hospital doing? Mm, okay, I might change. <laughs> um, so that, that's kind of the general progress. Now, hospitals, um, well, healthcare systems, really, at the, at the end of the day, how to treat a patient, the responsibility is the prescribing physician. And he will make his decision for, um, you know, what they're going to do, how they're going to treat that patient. It does reside there. But in terms of changing clinical practice in my selling experience, I mean, hospitals are very complex. Healthcare systems are very complex beasts. And you can generally find um, 20 or 30 different people or departments or parts of the healthcare system that can that are empowered to say, no, we're not doing that. Uh, but you generally can't find one <laughs> point of call 
is empowered to say, yes, we can do that. So now we're just down to the mechanism of change in clinical practice. That also has a time lag because um, grossly generalizing, you kind of need to get a bit of a consensus across um, doctors, nurses, procurement, uh, infection control, management, um, technicians, servicing. So it goes. And, and even within those groups, you're trying to get a consensus within each grouping. I've never thought about it like this, but um, so I, I could be totally off track. I'll put that uh, proviso in before I before I ask you this. But is the reason that, and I mean, we're in the we're a small country in the bottom of the South Pacific. But is the reason part of the reason why it's so successful, other than um, things like the philosophy that you talk about? But is that because you can get buy-in from, say, New Zealand? potentially Australia first and get that consensus to then launch it more globally. Um, and so and so the route to market is, you know, in New Zealand, and I don't want to be too colloquial, but, you know, you can kind of ring up someone at the, or they're no longer DHBs, but at the DHB and go, hey, we've got this. And they go, okay, we'll come out for a coffee and we can talk about it. That's a little bit more difficult in the US, but you can kind of start creeping up the consensus. Or is that just a is that kind of a, an irrelevant way of how it's how it's worked out over over the last sort of forty well, no eighty years? No, I think you are getting to uh, something that we do think is one of our um, competitive advantages of being in New Zealand. One is the whole idea you're going to have to do something different. It's not just the product; it's how you run your business. I mean, that originates from um, fundamentally from being in a small country, trying to compete globally. So you know that's. That is definitely a big part of it. Then the other part is, um, you know, there's a whole stage here. Once we've and we talked about it. Once we've got our product right, we have to work out what resonates with our audience. We have to work out how do we sell it, um, and we can do that in New Zealand uh, and at least and in Australia for the last couple of decades. We were a household name. There's huge trust and confidence. We can go in and work out what uh, clinical data is more important to these physicians, which we can work out how to make the change here. And uh, there's enough trust and confidence in healthcare systems in New Zealand and Australia, where if we get it completely wrong, uh, we can uh, iterate it and get it right. So for most things we do, this is another kind of um, unintended benefit, when we first introduce a new product, we might only have parts of a manufacturing line. Some of it might be manual. We might only have one set of tooling, things like that. We can make it, but we can't make a whole lot. Now, we can possibly supply the New Zealand market or the Australian market whilst we're building up our manufacturing capacity. So that does allow us to launch new products, I would say, sooner rather than later. I've heard the odd interpretation, man, you take a long time to roll out. It's not we take a long time to roll out, it's that we start sooner because we've got these low, lower volume markets that we can um, get going with when we have low manufacturing output. And then, the, as I say, the second part is um, you can do focus groups, you can do all kinds of um, like marketing constructs but the experience is actually trying to part people from their money is quite different to a focus group. <laughs> so we like to um, we like to work out, well, we have to work out our selling message. And once we think we've got it right, once we think, yeah, this is what uh, people are relating to, or in the early part of the process, we might come across, well, here's the problem. They're all worried about this, and, and I don't have that data yet. I really want that data before I go somewhere else. I'm not going to make any progress selling till I have that study finished, you know. So um, we'll get our, I would generalise as our product launch. It is the manufacturing and it is the, uh, it is, I'm going to call it the selling process, the selling approach. We'll get that right in New Zealand and Australia. Once we think we've got it right, we'll roll it out around the world. Um, and, and I think part of the reason we can do that is we, we are such a trusted name here, you know, when we get it wrong. I mean, you wouldn't, probably wouldn't do this if you got it right every time, first time. <laughs> There's always improvements. So when we get it wrong in this market, uh, we're forgiven. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean that's that's fascinating I, because. Or plus, do... plus, when we say here, I've got a new product. Um, large part of this, but I've got a new product. I want you to have a look at. You know, people will look. We're, at we're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that um, when you think about fish from Pike or healthcare versus the global market, you do think, well, how does it possibly um, compete on the global scale and what are the differentiators? And you've, you've perfectly described um, that, that process of getting a product to market and the trusted brand here means it's, just a, it's a fantastic launch pad that perhaps the company wouldn't be um, as successful if it was sort of um, uplifted and, and taken somewhere else, which is, which is kind of a question I want to ask you, not um, bear with me, but we were talking about before we went live that um, since 1967 or uh, when the sort of the Fisher and Pikel entity listed um, to today, the, the, if you had invested a dollar, it'd be now $12,000. And then if you invested $1 in Fisher and Pikel Healthcare when it listed in 2001, it would now be $3,000. Now that is phenomenal. That is what you call long-term investing, and um, we were also joking about you know um, you know this obsession with quarterly earnings. Where if you just look at the philosophy and principles and and track record of a company like Fisher and Pike or Healthcare, um, you need to think long-term. And, and like you say, long-term's not even five years for a business like this. It's it's thirty years. And imagine if you'd put you know a hundred dollars of your kids' money in, in Fisher and Pike or Healthcare in two thousand and one, and um, you know. 23, 22 years later, they've probably got their college paid for. So it's how do you keep the company in New Zealand? Because as, a, as an investor, we are an investment business and we love investing in great companies. And we're not after a short-term uh, boost because of M&A. Um, we are after 3,000% in, in 20 years. That is, that is our bread and butter. And any M and A, we think, especially in the New Zealand market, which is small to begin with, is is not what we want as shareholders. We want we want to be on the journey for the next thirty years. H- how do you keep the business from being, um, you know, a large company's sort of a vanity project or or you know M and A um, list and and taken away and 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 because it also could sort of, I guess, ruin the, the success of it because of what we were just talking about. Yeah, I think there are two components to your question. There's the how do you keep it in New Zealand and, and how, how do you deal or think about M&A. So um, remind me there's two parts. because <laughs> <laughs> That's why I've got a pen. I'll write it down. <laughs> um, I, I think first up, you know, as custodians of the business, we need to do what's right to the, for the business. Um, uh, and, and then the way I would think of that is there are some huge advantages to being uh, locating some of our activities in New Zealand. I mean, if you look at it today, out of 6,500 people, maybe 3,500 would be in New Zealand, 3,000 um, outside New Zealand. So, um, you know, we are an international business. Uh, we're in, we've got people in 54 countries. So I would think of us as an international business and we have some functions located in New Zealand. And um, that trend is going to continue of New Zealand being a small, smaller proportion, certainly of our people. So when we think about what's in New Zealand uh, and what makes sense, we're looking at what's the advantages and what's the disadvantages, because, you know, there is there are some disadvantages to being in New Zealand. But um, we make that as a, a, a I would say, a... Um, what's best for the business decision. Uh, and then just to kind of back that up, uh, and, and we've talked about some of the disadvantages, some of the advantages of being in New Zealand. So I'd say we're making the right decision for the business there and uh, we're taking advantage of what New Zealand can offer and we're mitigating the disadvantages, which are all related to distance. <laughs> um, and then I just want to back that up a little bit with a comment that... Um, and then we also think, you know, in terms of social responsibility, um, our responsibilities are probably proportional to, you know, where we have the impact. So in terms of social responsibilities, we, we have a big impact in New Zealand. Um, we don't have much of an impact in Los Angeles or Paris or 
you know, or, or London. So just park that comment. Um, now, when it goes to you know M and A, um, the the way we would think about that is our job is to run the business as well as we possibly can, uh, and we would drill that right down to improving care and outcomes. If we're doing something better for patients, better for healthcare systems, let's focus on that. And this also goes to how you get stuck on the long term, how you not get dragged the short term. Let's do what's best for the patient. Let's do what's best for healthcare systems. Let's be focused on it. Let's make sure everything we do is pointed at that. And that's in the conviction that, well, if that's what you're doing, you're going to have a pretty good business. A good business model will follow because you're getting better outcomes for patients and healthcare. So the good business model follows. And then the next part, and I hope we're doing it here today, is if we can communicate our business very, very well, um, it, should be, um, it should be valued in the right place. And, and if you're valued in the right place, um, you know, I guess the, the market does what the market does as far as M&A goes. But I think our job is to run the business as well as possible and then to try and communicate it to the wider audience as well as possible and uh, the rest follows. And to get the full value wherever it's based, which is at the moment, and hopefully for a good long time yet, right. um, the New Zealand market. Re- related to that, Lewis, um, I had a really interesting uh, trip to um, China and Hong Kong recently. And one of the fascinating things about that share market is now I've prob- someone listening will probably say my stats are wrong, but this is this is what I this is what I heard anyway. Of, of the 18,000 listed companies, 70% of them are founder run, where the founder and the um, management team were sort of there from the beginning, or you know, close to and, and have a sort of that, not just shareholding, but that personal um, relationship with the business. And that's how we would consider you as the CEO of Fisher and Paco Healthcare. You've been 40 years as you may as well have you know been there at the beginning at, at least for the healthcare business and for a good chunk of the you know combined entity when it was part of the appliances business how without sort of I, I'm, I'm not asking you to tell me what your journey in the future is of when you're when you're gonna but does that is that something that gives you um you know in the end people um, retire and, and move on and, and you've got some, the, the tenure at your business is incredible um, across the business but that will slowly transition management teams, slowly transition to management teams rather than founders and do you think, um, how do you think about culture in that sense because uh, I guess NZ Funds are similar you know, our, our, you know, we've had the tenure at our firm is sort of um, we're, we're, we're over 30 years old and there are a lot of people including you know, people in the management team and on the board that have been there since the start. But how do you think about that transition in culture? Um, look, it, it, it doesn't bother me so much. I mean, culture is one of the hardest things I ever had to talk to, and it's one of the most important. But um, uh, as an entity, Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, I mean, we've been going over 50 years. We've, we've got a strong entrenched culture. We reinforce our culture, and I'd kind of go back to, you know, it's just, it, it, it's it's just it's just, and, and you've got long tenure is really important to a successful culture, I think as well. Um, but you know, if you go back to um, when I started, you know, I was part of a group of forty, and that was divided into, you know, four or five groups of eight or nine or ten people and that had a manager and that reported to someone and that reported to someone and that reported to someone. The, the culture's in, intact. The, 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 I don't know, the transference of the culture, the leadership, the demonstration of the culture um, is intact. You've still got the same relationships just on a, just on a bigger scale. You know, it, it's just, it, I think it's quite scalable if you think of every I mean, you know, maybe a very simple mental model is every person has 10 people reporting to them and then it's just how big do you want to build your pyramid. Um, 
you know, it's quite a scalable model. How do you, how do you think about it in terms of culture is, you can't just go, right, our culture is going to be X and everybody, it it kind of comes from the people that you hire and the, and the type of people who run the business and that sort of trickles down, I guess. What do do you think about it explicitly or do you, is it just how, how, how do you manage culture at, at a business with, 7,000 people and half of them, or, or oh, I forget the numbers, uh, are overseas. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of travel. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. We bring a lot of people here, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, we're trying to be, I think we crossed a, um, I don't know where to start with this question. Um, I think the one interesting thing, whatever it was um, about a decade ago, we sat down and, you know, we thought, well, you know, we want to lock in some principles of this culture. And it was about the internationalism. We were, we were at one stage, bothered by, I'm not getting the fish and pike culture in this country. I'm not getting the fish and pike culture in that country. Um, so we, we did a couple of things to try and to fix that. It's well and truly fixed now. But a couple of things to fix it were, you know, let's try and write it down. Now, we didn't sit down and go, what culture do we want? Let's write it down. We that's, what en- that's what Enron did, yeah. and they wrote it on their door, and yeah. look what happened to them. We said, what do we do? What <laughs> do we do, and how do I describe it? So that was our process. And then the second part with regard to the, the international component was the realisation that um, – I don't want to pick on any country, but you know, if you're in, if you're in um, France, you might be – uh, thinking that's a New Zealand culture. Here in France, we do it differently. We don't do that in France. We do it this way. Here in the US, we don't do that. That's that's New Zealand, and that's a very small country. We do it differently in the US. We'll do it. We'll do it the US way. Um, and the realization was to make it abundantly clear: this is not a New Zealand culture. This is Fisher and Paykel's culture. And then the. The, the only intricacy really becomes, and you might need a local variation to that, but um, we've tried to be really clear over the last few decades, this is the core Fisher and Paykel culture. And um, separating it from bits of New Zealand culture is um, pretty much what cracked it for us internationally. Then, you know, the other thing... I th- think in terms of maintaining a culture and what's the culture and getting consistency you really are just getting down to its tenure and how you behave it's always something that can improve i guess or not improve but develop and and, yeah yeah absolutely but it's it's one of the i guess difficulties and and one even like you say uh um harder to manage as the company grows and people but also grows and 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 cultures Run, you know, yeah. globally. It's always grown in people. Um, I guess the point I was making very poorly a little while ago is um, it's kind of the same. If you go from 20 people to 30, that is just, it's only, it's completely scalable. Well, they say 20 to 30. To go from 1,000 to 1,500, it's just the same thing, exactly the same thing is happening. But, um, 50 times. I've <laughs> 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 got my maths right. <laughs> let's, let's take a, a, a step change from the business and talk about the industry because, I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on, on COVID specifically, but, you know, it, it was a horrible time for, you know, obviously the entire global population. But it was uh, it was an a, a incredibly unique pe- period of time for Fisher and Paykel Healthcare because you were working within a um, your products so happened to be the ones that were really sought after in, in a respiratory pandemic. Has that changed um, how you see your product development and what you're looking at? And how has the whole healthcare system changed because of it? Oh, and and has it? Gee, yeah, wonderfully complex question. Um, uh, I think if you take probably the, well, it's had all sorts, we could talk about this all day, uh, but I think the fundamental for our business is one of the newer therapies 
let's say, in terms of patients it could treat before COVID, patients it was treating before COVID, less than 10% um, penetration because it's a change in clinical practice. So we're only 10%, less than 10% of the way through uh, making that change. Uh, that's after 10 to 15 years. So what COVID did for us is it took this therapy and it put it front and centre of practically every respiratory position in the world. So um, in that sense, it totally accelerated knowledge of the therapy. Vast majority of um, physicians, respiratory physicians around the world would have used this therapy. I'm referring to nasal high flow or optiflow therapy during COVID. Before COVID, we're less than 10% penetrated. So they've all seen it in use on COVID patients. So I think that's the biggest kind of fundamental long-term change to the business. The implications are um, got a lot more clinicians familiar with the therapy. They've bought some equipment and, and their first thought is that that's to treat COVID patients. So um, that gives the business a big opportunity to ex accelerate growth haven't really got any hard runs on the board to put numbers on it on a quarterly basis <laughs> or an annual basis whatsoever. But the fundamental is we were less than 10% penetrated. Now we don't have a single physician who doesn't know what it is, what it does, and probably has treated patients with it. So um, we're kind of ahead of where we would have been, and that's great news. And fundamentally, we must be ahead. So that's great news. Uh, but then the the... The other flow-on effect, and of course, one of the short-term challenges is executing on that and, and then demonstrating to the um, six-monthly, 12-monthly thinkers that it's happening. That's a real challenge. Uh, but put that aside. The other um, implication is things that we were planning for the future on these 10, 20, 30 years journey to maintain our growth rate. They have to come up a bit sooner. Assuming we've accelerated this one, um, we'd like to bring other things forward as well. And I'm, I'm really glad with where you started this conversation because now you're trying to bring, you can see the complexity of bringing these things forward. And we're not talking about, um, gee, I'll get that in six months instead of 12. We're talking, you know, that was a, that was a 10 or 15 year journey. I want to bring it forward a year or two in, in any way I possibly can. And um, we started thinking like that actually during FY21, 22. One of the implications here is we need to bring other things forward. And is that because you need to, as a business, take advantage of the fact that your products that exist now are front in mind of, of physicians because they've all seen it and used it and, and showcasing what other benefits they can have other than just treating a COVID patient? Yes, we need to do that. But the fundamental thinking when we think about the business is we've kind of got, you know, it's pretty high growth, as you pointed out. <laughs> and the way you get the high growth is um, we've got to have something that's in its early days. We've got to have something that's kind of partway through because when we're successful, we have some things that are getting closer. If you look at where we started, you know, the first thing Fisher & Paykel Healthcare ever did we're probably 70, we treat 70 to 80% of the world's patients that get invasive ventilation. So that's a lower growth. And to, to aggregate up to the high growth numbers we expect, you, you need to have something that's under 10% penetrated that's growing really, really strongly. So, um, and, you know, there's just the law of large numbers. You know, you can't, you can't grow at um, 10 or 15 or 20% in one place forever, <laughs> in one thing, you can't do it forever. So our mental model is we layer it, we're layering in things, we're laying in therapies that are at different stages of their evolution. I've forgotten your question. But so what we're trying to do is this one that was layered in and was quite a big growth driver prior to COVID, probably a very healthy growth driver in this post-COVID era because of what we talked about, that goes really well. We kind of want to pull some of the other layers forward a bit. I've forgotten. No, no, that that does because I, I guess that's the point is you've you've got this beachhead now. That that beachhead isn't going to 
grow like you say because it already has kind of thing but but it's also given an opportunity now that there's and i could be getting the things wrong that that make it um make the sale easier but there's brand recognition there's the fact that the actual therapy recognition and so it, it sort of pulls a whole lot of other things forward and it does it just ta- it it just takes time and i guess in a competitive environment that you are in with um some pretty worthy large competitors they all see it too and and so it's kind of a i guess the the race is on somewhat to be taking advantage of um you know the this better i guess clarity of, of around what your products do but also you want to be different as well and start a new sort of range of therapies because you start standing start and you get a f- full market growth as well is is that kind of how you think about it? so it's yeah, sort of like of. um what 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 an outcome that we wouldn't like is um you get this um boost in revenue you get this boost in um uptake because of covid and all you've done is borrow that from the future <laughs> we want to build on that boost yep that's a great way of looking at it. So, speaking of competitors, and, and look, I, I don't know how much you you can talk about these sorts of things, but it seems everybody's suing everybody for patents, and 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 that is it is it is it an industry where people will literally see some of your products and copy it, or is it because there's some good R and D happening in, in unison, and and there's crossover because you're all working on the same thing, and how do you stop that happening? Because I guess the the reason for the question is again thinking about the growth in, in in China and the you know the amazing amount of technology and education that's going into that country. There's going to be uh, manufacturing, you know, sort of instead of just being the manufacturer, the actual design and the thinking is going to come from there too. How do you protect everything that you're doing? Yeah. Numerous mechanisms, <laughs> and a lot of a lot, of, and lawyers are in the end are the winners of of these mechanisms. I'm guessing. Well, it doesn't matter what happens; lawyers get paid, so you know, that's not a bad business model. Anyway, <laughs> um, numerous mechanisms. So the fundamental is we want to have a whichever stage of evolution we're in, we want to have a product no one else has. So that means you need to keep running. Uh, you need to keep improving your product. Um, so that's absolutely fundamental. And I'll, I'll go back to another fundamental is, you know, we're aiming at gross margins of 65%. So, you know, you're selling something for nearly three times what it costs you to make it. Um, and that difference has got to be driven by intellectual property. You know, that's what people are, that's what people are paying for. That's how you can maintain these gross margins. So you've got a different product. The instinct, uh, and people can potentially copy it, uh, and the protection against the copying is patents. But I think the fundamental one, so if you have the patents in place, people can now copy things where patents have expired. Right? So if you think a patent has a 15 to 20 year lifespan, uh, that means you've got to be, by the time they've copied something because patents have expired, we want a product that gives a better outcome because uh, the, the copying model will generally be relying on pricing because they're not you know, spending the money on the R&D and the changing clinical practice and the clinical research. They're just spending the money on the D <laughs> out of R&D. So um, you know, they have a lower cost base, so potentially they're selling on price. And by the time that happens, you know, the business model that we work with anyway is you know we need something better than that you've moved on already to the next thing absolutely so i think you know yes patents um there's there's always a bit of patent activity uh going on in our business um it's generally in the background um and you know we've seen it bubble to the surface um we've seen it bubble to the surface i think once um around that together 14, 15 um, litigation. Um, we, we just have to see that as a cost of doing business, the cost of maintaining, you know, gross margins and competitive advantage. But um, I have to say, you know, in, in, for our business anyway, uh, there's always a little bit of something bubbling along. This is not to give away um, what's in the hopper for your competitors, but what, what are you excited about 
looking forward from a from a product point of view is is there things coming through that um that are already announced perhaps let's let's not go let's not go back to the uh to the the initial stages of some of your r and d but are, are we going to see big changes in 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 what you do and and the products you're releasing um or is it all i'm I'm trying to say i guess from a pharmacy you're not a pharmaceutical company but they talk about these blockbusters or is is de- the device business all about incremental improvements um so this question is like being asked to choose your favorite child so <laughs> we're not going there we're not going there i think you've got you've got your incremental improvements and i describe it once you're doing something you need to keep moving it because obvious will follow um so we certainly have that part of the business uh and, and that can be quite exciting uh the ones let's not say maybe more excited by but the ones i tend to focus on are the ones that are driving a change in clinical practice because these are the ones that the customers aren't actually asking for. So, um, you know, one of the things about our business, or we're just going through it now, when we do an annual business plan, um, we have, uh, my arms aren't long enough, we have a list of things we want to do this long. And we look at how much we could reasonably grow our costs by, and it's never big enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to do it. And that's been the story of the business forever. And I think that's really, really good, really healthy. In fact, I think the day um, we don't have a list longer than what we can do, that's the day we're in trouble. So part of our planning process, you know, is what are we going to do out of that list? And uh, when, when it's something customers are asking for or need or want, or it's a clear improvement, um, that's really easy to say, oh, we should be doing that. Um, the ones where it requires a bit of discipline, is where it's a change in clinical practice that no one's actually asking for yet. That's the one you need the discipline to say, well, no, I'm doing that because we're going to get much better outcomes. And that's also the more, you know, that's the innovation. Uh, that's the fundamental that the business is built on. But um, probably quite conscious of this because we're going through it right now. But, the, you know, the, the discipline is to do what the customers aren't currently asking for. If I was to ask you a question about you and then related to what you've just said when when you think about what's your biggest stress as the ceo would that be would that be along the lines of one of the most because in the end someone has to make the decision about which one to go for and 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 it, and it might not work out or is it not quite work out like that it's it's a bit more um diversified perhaps but you know maybe your biggest stress is something else but you know, when you you're you are the CEO of the biggest company listed company in New Zealand, um, you've, you've got a you've got some weight on your shoulders. How, how you know what are the things that keep you up at night? These are so multi layered questions. <laughs> I think uh, when I said I'm not prepared, it's because there's this uh, they just keep flowing because there's so many things to ask you. But um, you can, you can say I'm not going to ask uh, answer that if you want. But I but I um. It feels like a counselling session. We're going to go all over the place with the answer, but I think that's in response to the question. (laughs) I think. um, I think. I'm not a journalist. I'm an investor. (laughs) This is probably part of the issue. (laughs) um, Consistently, I get asked questions kind of like that, and CEO this and CEO that. um, I can't speak for any other company, but it kind of doesn't work like that in Vision Particle. I would say that. it's more of a team effort. It's more of a group effort. I do think um, so. You know, I don't. I don't feel much different. There's a few things we can get to that. I don't feel much different in this role to any other role that I've had in the company. In terms of the decision making process, um, I had just as much input in my previous roles as I do in this one. Um, so that's kind of how it works here. You know, just to that comment, you have to make the decision. Well, I don't actually. It's exactly the same process. That I work with actually. The process makes the decision rather than the yeah, individual. The yeah. is, it's the same yeah. process. I don't feel like there's much different. And I, I don't want to have this mental model. You've got to make a really tough decision. What what are we what is it, CEO? <laughs> That's not how it works um, at all. It's more process driven. Um, then when you go to I mean I'll try and deal with your stress question. Uh, so I'll give you absolutely well, one, I probably wouldn't call it stress uh, in the <laughs> clinical definition of the word. Uh, don't really, I don't really feel that. I feel um, 
a responsibility. And one of the things I guess that's unique about this role is, um, and in New Zealand it's pretty low key, is the profile. I mean, you said it, you're the CEO, is the profile. And many times we have something and I say, well, you know, you need to talk to, you need to talk to that guy, he knows all, he's the expert. And they go, no, I want to hear it from the CEO. So I, I think that's a unique, unique obligation. And that is about presenting the business. And I guess my big, biggest stress, or the thing that bothers me the most, because it's the thing um, uh, I'm responsible for, is uh, presenting the business when it has to come from the CEO. I'm always worried I might not do a very good, not always, my biggest worry is I might not do a very good job of it. And I haven't really had a career in PR, have I? <laughs> but then for me, the mitigator, because at the end of the day, you know, um, to do your job well, you need to sleep well, and sleep well, you can't be too stressed. Um, so at the end of the day, I manage that by saying, I, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever we are doing the right thing. That is what we do. We will do the right thing when it's unpopular. We will do the right thing when we cop flat. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind we'll do the right thing. So surely sooner or later I should be able to communicate that. <laughs> it, we, we, were, we were speaking on this um, podcast to Teresa Gatting um, a week or so ago, and she said something very similar, and it's around, well, the the purpose one of the purposes of the CEO is to is to work with a whole lot of people that are and and I think a lot of CEOs say this because people who get to the position where you and Teresa are are, are generally humble around their their um, effectiveness. But you hire people that are way more talented and smarter than you, and you just have to sort of make sure they um, you know, push in the direction of their strengths and helped with their weaknesses, but actually it's them that's running the business and I'm just the conductor. But it, but it is a bit of fit. It is about the team and, and getting high quality people. And um, I guess there's not a lack of quality of people that want to work in a business like Fish and Pico Healthcare. No, I'm a, I mean, you know, if you think starting at 40 people and, you know, currently six and a half odd thousand people, I've made a career out of hiring people that do things much better than I do. <laughs> it's 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 um it's a good it's obviously been a good skill set because uh, I refer you back to the share price um increase that we've been talking about over the last um twenty or forty or whatever time period you want to think about. Lois, we've got a little bit more time to go, um, and then you have to get on with your day. But when I think about um, there's so many things that you, you want to ask someone that you've got a, an hour to spend time with, and, and um, Fisher and Paykel is a business that I think is um, fascinating f- for the fact that it's um, such a global, um, high-growth company. Um what do you think the future is for those sorts of businesses in New Zealand? Um, and, I, and, I, and I know you're not a New Zealand business, and I really think that's important. I think um, I call it being a bit of a super Kiwi. You know, you don't want to be too, oh, we're a New Zealand business and um, because I think you can be get a bit too narrow-minded. But do you think um, – and, I, and I, do you think we have the right setup in New Zealand to be able to foster more businesses that can turn into a – Fisher and Paykel Healthcare over, over the next few years? And what needs to happen to really encourage that? Because um, you, you are quite lonely <laughs> on the on the New Zealand share market and in that sense around um, high growth, high quality, um, um, high prof, profitable um, growth businesses. And, and just interested to get your views on that. Yes, they're very wide-ranging questions, aren't they? <laughs> I, I think it is really important uh, to, for, I can only talk to us really, but um, I think it's really important to think that we think of ourselves and you think of us as an international business. Nobody buys our products because they're made in New Zealand. That's not a selling feature. And nobody comes to work at Fisher and Paykel because it's a New Zealand company. That's not a selling feature um, for us. Uh, people buy our products because they think they're going to get the best outcome uh, with it. And people come to work for us because they, um, I hope, uh, you know, they feel that's going to be the most satisfying job for them. So none of that's really connected to New Zealand. And it comes back to, you know, where we were earlier in the process. 
Um, New Zealand is different. It, it does have some unique things about it. And um, we have a long focus on making the most out of what's unique about New Zealand and mitigating um, what's a disadvantage to being in New Zealand. You know, I can remember way back when I first started at Fisher & Paykel, you know, somebody saying, hey, if we're dealing with a customer in New York, they should not be able to tell whether we're in California, New Zealand, or London. They should not be aware of our location. We should not penalise ourselves. So um, I think that's part of it. But, um, and, 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 you know, and we've talked about, um, you know, New Zealand's got a nice, we've talked about the healthcare system and how that works for us. Um, it's, and that's probably the benefit of being a big fish in a small pond. Um, so that can translate to, I would imagine, to other businesses. Being a big fish in a small pond, you've got some reliability, some confidence, some trust in the local community for what you're doing. Whereas, you know, we, if we were located in California, we wouldn't have that. Um, what about availability of like um, engineers and R and D credits yeah. and all that stuff? Is, is oh, it the right setup? Yeah. Well, when we look at, as far as R and D credits go, I mean, when we do look at location, and we do as custodians of the business, you know, we necessarily need to do it dispassionately. Um, you look at the place. There's yeah. a massive list of pros and cons. And we do it every time we look at manufacturing sites as well. There's a massive list, and R&D credits just goes in, oh, that's good, that's a tick. So I don't think there's any single thing, it's not many, not many single things that would tip you, yes, this is the best place, or this is a place I won't go. There might be a few. Um, but um, on the whole, it's the complete package, and that's where I put R&D credits. Um, in terms of getting people... Um, one thing did change for us a little bit. You know, there are some skills we want you just can't get in New Zealand. You know, it's only us. So that needs to be grow your own and to a certain extent import uh, that skill. Um, as we've become uh, of a size, I think we did, we, for quite a while, we had trouble getting people to move to New Zealand with the skill set. Uh, they would look at salaries, traffic, believe it or not, price of houses and go, I don't want to move to New Zealand. So we had trouble getting people here when they just looked at it on the surface. Um, and if they did come, they maybe come for the wrong reasons. Uh, we, we did get to a scale where people, um, that's not an issue for us now, uh, but it's because in our kind of small niche, unique industry, we're of a scale where if you're in this industry, you probably know us and you, you, know, you probably would see it as a great career move coming to work for Fisher & Paykel. So we're able to attract people uh, to New Zealand if we want. But where I was heading to is when you look at the bigger picture, and not just in the last year or two, um, one of the challenges is getting the calibre, quality, and type of people that you want. And that is more and more becoming a global competition to get the calibre of the people you want. Um, so we do fine recruiting in New Zealand as well, again, because we're a household name. Um, we get, gee whiz, I don't know, but uh, before COVID, you know, for 100 positions, we would get over a 1,000 graduates in New Zealand applying for those jobs. And so we do just fine. But if you look at the general economy, I don't think there's a surplus. Obviously, you know, there's a little bit of swings and roundabouts on it. But on the whole, over the long term, I don't think there's a surplus of highly talented, highly skilled technical people, that's for sure, in the world. So um, I think one of the things we can do in New Zealand is, is make it a really attractive place to come and live and be. And, that's and that brings the talent and it retains the talent. Yeah, retention and attraction, yeah. 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 Well, Lois, it's been really fascinating talking to you about about you and and your business and and it's really also refreshing not talking about quarterly earnings and and uh marginal tax rates and depreciation lines and and those sorts of things so look we really appreciate your time um i could do this for another hour but as you said my complexity of questions were more because where do you even start with um with a career and a business journey like yours but Thank you for being so candid and open and, and I've really enjoyed it. 
Well, thanks. I enjoyed it too. Um, a very different kind of interview and an absolute pleasure, I'd have to say. Thank you. Thanks so much. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.